Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host... Patrick Green. What up, my friend? How you doing? I'm doing well. We're off to a rolling start in the new year. We got an Anatomy of a Scene episode today that we've been talking about for like six months, but haven't gotten around to doing yet. So I'm True. feeling good about it. How are you feeling? Me too. I'm excited. This is a a, a bit of a different look into Blade Runner. Uh, we felt like we would kind of toss things up a little bit and not get so heavy um, and really talk about kind of some of the interworkings of the plot and maybe a little bit of Decca rap going on, which I think that this scene really uh, begs the question. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. You know, we got some listener feedback that, uh, we, we took to heart as we do all listener feedback about how sometimes we can get in a rut where we talk a little bit, maybe too much about real world parallels with Blade Runner. And, uh, and, you know, we took that seriously because it's true. Like, well, this is at the end of the day, escapist entertainment that does reflect on the world we live in, but it is not the world we live in. So this was, you know, we had another uh, kind of controversial-ish real world episode planned, but we're kind of switching things up a little bit to take more of a lighthearted look for a while. Uh, So again, you know, we do take what listeners say seriously. So thank you for writing in uh, to our mystery writer. And and without further ado, I guess, Jamie, you want to kind of lay out what we're going to talk about today? Yeah. So we've had the discussion about Decker Rep and we it took us five almost five years to really get into that discussion it wasn't something that had ever interested us in terms of just the question itself for me it doesn't matter i think for you i mean not that i'm speaking for you but generally it wasn't this thing that we are that interested in as a as a podcast but what was what was interesting about that was why people asked that question what matters about that question and we had we did get an, an email few weeks ago that was really angry and really mean to, um saying that it's black and white it does matter who do we who the fuck do we think we are <laughs> they didn't use that language but it was a pretty a pretty stern and angry email that we received um basically stating their kind of black and white look at at elements of blade runner which i think was interesting but so I have been thinking about the scene and it's the scene where Bryant is sitting down with Deckard and they're looking at a screen and it's very blue. And I think there's like a projection from behind and they're looking at the replicants. And this scene has always been interesting to me and it really gets at the Decker rep question. Well, it, I, I would say it. the scene is a one big question to me because number one, and we'll get into this more, you know, Deckard is sitting down with Bryant and they're looking at replicants and Deckard starts or and Bryant starts talking to Deckard about what's happening and um, who has escaped. Where are they? And they're going to the Tyrell building and Deckard is perplexed the entire time. And that for me was enough to, to talk to you, Patrick, and say, we need to discuss this because this is not something's up with this scene. I already had an IQ test this year. I don't think I never had one of these. 
Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Answer as quickly as you can. Yeah, sure. 1187 at Hunterwasser. Yeah, that's the hotel. What? Where I live. Nice place? Yeah, sure, I guess. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three male, three female. They slaughtered 23 people and jumped a shuttle. An aerial patrol spotted the ship off the coast. No crew, no sight of them. Three nights ago, they tried to break into Tyrell Corporation. Two of them got fried running through an electrical field. We lost the others. It's a weird scene. Let me also say before we go further that the listener who wrote in about real world things was very nice and measured in what they said. The person who wrote in about the Decorep thing was not. And uh, and I, I always wonder, like, why people get so angry with that question, like what it, what it brings up in them. And I think it reflects more on the people who are angry than it does on those of us who are kind of trying to oh, talk sure. through different ways that it could be. So, yeah, we kind of let that, you know, roll off our backs a little bit. But ne- next time you write in, if you're writing in out of a place of anger – like consider, because we're actual people. Like consider if it's worth doing that or not, you know, or maybe taking a taking a couple minutes away from the computer screen before you write your email out. But anyway, so go. Yeah, this scene exactly what you're talking about. There's a couple of uh, Decker Bryant scenes, of course, but the one that we're talking about starts with the Leon footage, right? Where where he's showing Decker, Leon, and Holden's uh, interrogation at Tyrell. And he's talking about one of the things that I love about this scene before we get to the Decarepi aspects of it is there's so much information in it that I mean, I've mm. seen this movie dozens and dozens and dozens of times, but even just now watching it more closely, like and really parsing exactly the order of the information that he was giving Deckard, there really is a lot going on here. Um, you know, of course, you learn about uh, before you learn that there's replicants, you know, uh, what the classes are and what they're up to and what their intelligence level and strength level is and things. You're learning about how, uh, you know, after they commandeered the shuttle to get out of Mars, after they'd murdered, twenty, you know, in, in Brian's words, slaughtered 23 people, uh, they, you know, two of them get killed and then the rest of them get lost. And they have this idea that they're hiding out at Tyrell as employees. And that's how they find Leon. In the, in the beginning of the film, the very beginning of it. Um, so it's it really like it. It's similar to the uh, to the tears and rain soliloquy at the end of the movie. There's like a lot of amazing imagery in this that I, I think a lesser movie would have tried to show, you know, like we would have gotten montages of because I mean, think about like what an incredible action sequence that would make to see, you know, Roy killing people and going off Mars in a shuttle and, you know, and this ghost ship floating. And it's, it's an amazing sequence to think about visually. Mm-hmm. But um like the great movie that it is, it lets us kind of do that with our imagination. And as you watch the film more, you get more of a gist of exactly what the order of events was. And then, of course, you have Deckard, who's uh, watching all this, who is like just as confused as we are the first time we see the movie because like we don't know anything about replicants yet. You know, if you put yourself back in your shoes and you were a kid watching this for the first time, you know, you also were like, what? Like, what? who, who, you know? But Deckard, who is supposedly this legendary Blade Runner, is similarly like, what? Who? <laughs> what happened? What are they doing? Who is it? You know, even the look on his face is so funny. It's like such a Han Solo face when Harrison Ford is sitting there and he's kind of like, you know, winking and looking at the screen like, what am I looking? It seems completely Almost overacted confused. in some ways. Yeah, it's just, it's just really strange really strange um and the vibe is really strange there now what i'll say is before we get into the conversation that we're going to have today which i'm very excited to uh, i think the scene is somewhat demystified by subsequent things that have come out especially the comic books but even things like the the rpg that just came out um 
I think, at least looking at it now through the lens of other media that's come out, the reason why Deckard is so confused is because while he was retired himself, not retired in the way we retire replicants as Blade Runners, you know, but retired uh, as a job, the Nexus 5 generation had gone out and the Nexus 6s were in. So he's learning about Nexus 6 models. And of course, he he, he goes, what? And uh, Bryant clarifies that he's talking about a Nexus 6 and that they have this four-year lifespan now and they can blend in a lot more. And so Deckard is, uh, I think part of his confusion is coming out of this idea that the the replicants that he was used to dealing with are more along the lines of the replicants that we see in comics like Blade Runner Origins, uh, which of course takes place in 2009, and we get to see the, tra- the transition between Nexus 4 and Nexus 5, and we get this version of replicants that are much more, uh, not, not primitive, but less passable as human, and a lot more sort of, they, they stick out a lot more just in their affect and their behavior and their strength level, like they, they just, they are much more kind of me- mechanical almost. So the transition between the Nexus 4 to the Nexus 5, and then the Nexus 5 to the Nexus 6, really, those are huge evolutionary differences. So I think looking at it now, and seeing, having played the computer game, having played the Blade Runner RPG, which talks more about the transition between Nexus 5 and Nexus 6, reading the comics that talks about those things, you know, we have the benefit of understanding more about why he's confused. But you're right, the first time you see it, it's very strange because it seems like he doesn't have any clue what he's even doing there in the first place. Yes, and Bryant's reaction to him, or Bryant, as Brian is talking, he's looking at him like, almost like, how is he going to take this? And I think you're clarifying something to me to some degree in terms of Bryant's, or Deckard is back on the scene. He's back in the job. But how long was he gone from this job? He still had his gun. He had his, like, two weeks, a week. There's still some confusion there. But much like you, like, I've seen this scene over and over, and it's only within the past year or two as we start to get more granular and we start really breaking things down more and more that I'm thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't really add up. And I get that maybe the Nexus 6s are new models, but you don't, there's no timeline established by any, whether it's the voiceover in the theatrical cut or anywhere, to know how long Deckard has been away. So, the Nexus Six seem the Nexus Sixes seem like they they're just around and they've been incorporated into off-world society, and Deckard has no idea about them. But that strikes me as strange, doesn't it? You? It strikes me as strange because no matter what you do, like you would assume he would have at least heard about the Nexus Sixes. That that's what's weird about this, right? Because Nexus, according to I think the RPG, if not the comics, the the Nexus Five models really were fit, started to get phased out in, in 2019 because that was when the Nexus 6s were first being, you know, introduced by Tyrell. So, like, it was it was definitely current news that you would imagine anybody, let alone a Blade Runner, like somebody who specifically his life was tailored to hunting these replicants down, would have probably found out a lot of this stuff already. Um, it could be that it's because they were more popularized off-world. I mean, well, they, they, were, they were literally only off-world, right? except for the ones who escaped. So maybe that was kind of why he was out of the loop. But you're right, we have no idea of the timeline of how long he was out for. You know, in my personal headcanon, I think maybe two years when I'm watching the movie, I, I get the sense that it's been, a, it's been a while. Just because, like, when you go to his apartment, it really looks like he's been kind of holed up there for a long time. It, he seems, like, sort of out of sorts. 
uh, he doesn't really get like where to go. Like, I mean, when, even when he's in the LAPD building, he seems just sort of like he's looking around, like, where am I going? He's very, he's very disoriented. Uh, he's also drunk. I mean, he's also literally drinking during the scene too. You know, the first thing Bryant does is give him whiskey. So it's, it's a strange, it's a strange thing. And and why would he not have any clue about the Nexus sixes existing in the first place? And why would he be so baffled at the changes that they've had? You know? And okay. Let's just say your head cannon is true. He's been out of the force for two years, which means 20, 2017 is when he left, which, but meaning so then the incept date for this group of replicants well no for roy was 2016 2016 right? yeah um so that means roy was made or manufactured before deckard had left the the blade runner unit which means he would have been told by someone tyrell's making a new replicant yeah he new, would have to know so about it he would have to know and yeah. but if you get if we break this if we break this down even more, Bryant is talking about you know how they can learn and how they can behave, and Deckard is completely puzzled by this. Like this is like like he's never even heard of a replicant before, never even heard of one, and it's the most fascinating thing. And it gives credence to the idea in twenty forty nine that perhaps Deckard himself is a replicant. And if you go into his apartment and you look at all of those photos, everything that's in his apartment, it's full of like visual memory to almost like key in to a memory he has in his head that they've given him uh, and give evidence of that memory with a photo. Of course, we don't know this. I don't know this. But this scene to me is evidence that something is going on. Now, again, I don't care if Deckard is a replicant or not, but this scene is really, really mysterious. On the possibility they might try to infiltrate his employees, I had Holden go over and run Voight comp tests on the new workers. Looks like he got himself one. So you look down and you see a tortoise. It's crawling towards you. A tortoise? That's Leon, the ammunition loader on intergalactic run. He can lift 400-pound atomic loads all day and night. The only way you can hurt him is to kill him. It is very mysterious, and the more I'm thinking about it, a lot hinges on the timeline, Right which is a critical piece of information that we just don't have. And it's another one of these holes in the script of the movie, I think, that it's, you know, I mean, we were just talking last night about procedural shows because we both just watched The Pale Blue Eye, which is an example of like a procedural kind of mystery thriller, which which is quite good, I think. Uh, and we were talking about how exposition is meted out there and about how there's kind of a way to do it and there's a way to not do it. And like The Pale Blue Eye is an example sometimes of how not to do it. Mm-hmm. Um you still like when you're in this procedural setting, like we're in here, there are, you kind of, you, you need to give the audience a case file of sorts, you know, up front, like you kind of need to know the lay of the land. We get that with the scroll in the beginning and we get that with some of the conversations and the world building, but like the, our main character, we really don't know anything about him. And we are told things about him kind of obliquely, you know, by, by Bryant, who, again, like you're saying, he's looking at him like he's looking at a lizard, like he's, the way that he's sitting is so fascinating because he's leaned all the way back. His head is turned, looking directly at Deckard. His eyes don't move from Deckard's face more than once or twice in that entire scene. He's just staring at him. And there's smoke billowing. Mean, I'm like, what the fuck is he smoking? The amount of smoke just billowing out of the table in front of the light. It's a beautifully shot scene, but it's it's a very deliberately shot scene. And we don't know anything about Deckard's past. 
that could be played as it is in a lot of movies, like for example, Westerns. We don't know a lot about the antagonists of the protagonists of Westerns a lot of the time because we want to have an air of mystery about them. It could be that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it, it in, in not giving us some of these crucial biographical things about Deckard, it does a bunch of things. One of them is it decentralizes him from the movie quite a bit, which pre- presents a little bit of a vacuum where eventually Roy Batty kind of finds his way in which is interesting, but it also means that we are similar to Deckard, just as confused about what's going on, and we're kind of playing catch-up, and and we're playing catch-up not only about the events that he's learning about, but about him himself, about Deckard himself. One thing that I'll say about those facial expressions that we were talking about, where Deckard is looking kind of puzzled and kind of like he's completely bewildered by it, could be because when he was a Blade Runner, say that was five years ago, right? It was the era of the Nexus 4s phasing out and the Nexus 5s. Blade uh, replicants for him were very much utilitarian work objects that had no humanistic, uh, you know, affect. They didn't come across as convincingly human. They would throw cars around because they were physically capable of it. And, they're, you know, they weren't inhibited the way that replicants later became. So, like, for him, he was really hunting down farm equipment the way that he saw it. And then what he's hearing now is that the farm equipment has feelings and intelligence and intuition and has, like, all this complexity and has a four-year lifespan. So, like, it's basically developmentally a toddler when it dies. Like, he's getting a lot of really confusing information. So I think part of his confusion might be coming from that, you know? That, like, as a Blade Runner, he had a very black-and-white worldview, obviously. And that black-and-white worldview has now become, like, murkied quite a bit. Do you know what I mean? Because there's so little we know about him, it's hard to even figure out what's going on in some ways. And I do like the idea that much like a a protagonist in a Western, there's this character, this mysterious character who might be a sheriff or, uh, and I mean, Deckard is essentially a sheriff. But one thing that Bryant says to Deckard before this scene that we're discussing is very telling, in my opinion. Now, what it's telling, I don't know. He goes, Deckard's about to leave the office. He goes, I was quick when I'm came in here, I'm twice as quick leaving or whatever. And Bryant goes, hold on, you're not cop, you're little people. What does that mean? Well, I think he says, if you're not a cop, you're little people. But what does little people mean? Well, I think that actually speaks to what we were talking about in our previous episode, right? With this idea that there are the enforcers and then there's the enforced upon. Mm. And so I I think he's saying like, either you're on our side or you're one of the people out there that we're cracking down on. Now, I question that because there's the scene in 2049 when uh, K is walking down the hall as he's coming into L.A. and, you know, that montage scene. Then you see him in the, the baseline test room. You see him walking towards other what I gather are human cops and they go, fuck off, skin job. And and um, K puts his head down and then he puts his head down again not to look them in the eyes. And my interpretation of that scene is K being a little person. K isn't cop. He's a little person. And so, again, this is me. The contextualization of 2049 changes a little bit what we're seeing, what I'm seeing in 2019. So it makes me kind of go over everything with a fine tooth brush. And like, what does this mean? What what did this phrase mean? Now, they knew what they were doing when they made Blade Runner. Do we know that Deckard is a replicant and he was an experiment to meet Rachel? I don't know. Something's there. Yeah, definitely. I did look up the quote, and there is no if. So it is just, you're not a cop, you're little people. 
Does it, I don't know why I was thought. He goes, remember, like a, you're not cop, you're little people. Yeah, right. Yeah, stop right where you are. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, I was like found there was like an implied if there, but you're right. He's just saying like you're not a cop, you're little because he's not a member of the force. But I, I do think that the meaning is still the same thing, which is like while you're in this building and you're on our side, like you are on the side of the big guys, right? And you go back out there again, you're just one of the people on the street. And um, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh. Bryant says another very telling thing when he's stopping Deckard, and Deckard says no choice, and he goes no choice, pal. Why doesn't Deckard have a choice? Why would you not have a choice? Slaves don't have a choice. Yeah. And I don't know for sh- again, I don't I have no stake in Deckard being a replicant or a human. I think the movie is we are we are um he's our avatar in some way. He's our, our he is our cipher for this film. We experience it not so much through his eyes, but he's our guide in some ways. In the scene when Bryant is talking with Deckard, Bryant goes on to talk about Nexus 6 and what they are and their feelings and how they can learn and all of these things. That is purely for us, the audience. That's really what it is. And I get that. We're understanding a little bit more in terms of what they're dealing with. Even though it's for the audience, it being for Deckard still doesn't quite work. I think it works because Deckard has no idea about Nexus sixes yet. Like, I think that's, that's the, that's the reason why he's learning all that stuff. It works out well for us. Cause we also don't, but for whatever reason, I mean, it, it could be that deck that, I mean, it, it's it, Nexus. So the other, other kind of issue here is that if the Nexus six prototypes were built as early as 2016, which we know they were then like, how long has he been out of the force for and how has, and it doesn't even matter about being on the force or not. Like you would think people would just know about this because like, it's a, it's a news story. Like clearly there's, there's fucking news blaring out of every, everywhere you walk, you know, in Los Angeles, you think somebody would have mentioned Nexus sixes and what's different about them over mm-hmm. the previous three years. So yeah, I do think that Deckard is learning about them for a reason. Cause I think we're supposed to get this idea that he has no clue what's going on. The reason he doesn't get, have a clue what's going on is, is, is very interesting. Um, and to go back to something else you were talking about with the, uh, you know, you're not a cop, you're, you're little people. Uh, he also says things like, you know, the score, pal. And, and when he gets, uh, when when Deckard is summoned, he's summoned like he's being arrested, which is yes. also interesting. That, that, yes. That's something that like used to really confuse me when I watched this as like a kid, because I was like, is he is he like getting arrested? And then and then he goes there and he's talked to like he's not, but still sort of treated like he is, right? When he's eating his noodles, I mean, Gaff won't leave unless he goes with him. Like that's. I mean, what other situation is that when a law enforcement officer comes up behind you with a with a cruiser, with a patrol car and says, get in, you know, like that's it's like he's being apprehended. And then he goes to the station and he's being escorted through it. Like when he comes into Bryant's office, there there are people like Gaff waiting behind the door to make sure that he goes into it. And then when he sits down and tries to leave, you're right. Yeah, he gets stopped by Bryant in a very uh, authoritative way. What's interesting, too, is that other than that interaction where he tells him to stop and come back in, most everything Bryant says to Deckard is very much friendly. It's in a congenial spirit. It's like, hey, we're all friends. Like, we've been through a lot together. Listen, there's this crazy, can you believe these crazy new replicants? Like, what are they going to make robots do next? You know, like, this was wild. You know, that's like the tone that he has. And then when he gets really scary, 
uh, it's it's you, you. I think you realize what's actually going on. So what we're seeing in this scene might not necessarily be that Deckard is a replicant. And of course, when they were making the movie, as we've talked about ad nauseum, there was no consensus on any of that stuff. So like this, we you know you can look at it however you want to look at it. But we know, if nothing else, that Harrison Ford was playing it like he was not a replicant. So like maybe that's a good window into this sequence because we don't have Ridley Scott on camera, right? We have him behind it with Jordan Cronenworth, and we have. Harrison Ford on camera playing a human in this moment. We know that for a fact, whether he's being framed as a human is another thing. But like from Harrison Ford's perspective, Deckard doesn't know what's going on, not because he's a replicant who was just incepted or just brought to life or something. He's, he, for him, the Deckard that he's playing is a human who has been out of the loop for however long it's been. It has no clue what's going on. But I think what makes the scene interesting, though, in spite of that, maybe because of it, is because you really can look at it both different ways, and they both work well because of the gaps left in the way that the story is told, intentionally, but also sometimes, I think, unintentionally. Well, I don't get it. What do they risk coming back to Earth for? That's unusual. Why? What do they want out of the Tyrell Corporation? Well, you tell me, pal. That's what you're here for. Here's an interesting question, or uh, something that I've been thinking about as you were talking, and uh, to reference our police state, episode, which is the last episode that we released. Again, I don't know what Deckard is. Let's just say for a minute that Deckard is a human and that that's, for all intents and purposes, that's what he is. What kind of world is he living in where he is forced into a a police force? He has to come back when they tell him to come back. He can't, you know, he can't, like, so when he is apprehended, quote unquote, by Gaff and another officer, what was that about? Why are they apprehending Deckard? What is going on in this world where people are bound to these jobs that way, where they have no choice? What's That's my question. Playing it for, for face value, and Deckard is a human, and he is on a, a retired Blade Runner on a force, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> It's a good question. Yeah, you know, I think you can look at it through the lens of the comics again, which I keep referencing, but it's it's because at this point we have so many of them that we have a lot of and you know, it's made by people involved with the franchise, so we get a lot more information on it. If you look at the way that Blade Runners were treated in the years before 2019 in the comics, you get a sense that there was a lot more autonomy to their job that they could do things more the way that they wanted to do things, that it was much more of like a traditional sort of hunt and chase dynamic. And uh, they were kind of venerated as like really decorated officers and treated treated pretty well, according to that. Like they were they were respected a lot. And in Blade Runner 2019 in the film, like Blade Runners are treated as at least from what we can see as tools, right? Like they have become things that are wielded. And I think that's why by the time we get to 2049, we see Blade Runners have become only replicants. Like they're just using like because to them, that's perfect, right? When Joshi and Kay have that interaction about having a soul and et cetera, like from where Joshi, Joshi sits, that is the point, like the point is that he doesn't have a soul. The point is that he doesn't, he's not supposed to ask questions like that. The point is he's supposed to be on baseline because you know, if Deckard and Holden and Gaff for that matter could have been held to a baseline test that they would have, you know, the LAPD would have loved that. Bryant would have, would have just loved that shit. 
and probably would have killed him if he failed his baseline test and probably gotten away with it, you know, because of the amount of, of intel that Deckard had access to, how integrated the Blade Runners were into the goings-on of huge corporations like Tyrell Corp. Like, I really feel like the they they wanted as inhuman a Blade Runner as they could get by the time 2019 comes around because the stakes are so high and because, you know, that's just the the type of environment that they're operating in. And so then you look at 2049 and like they really have literal tools because they're just these replicants that they can control. And they're not only just, I mean, also it's interesting to look at them at these two movies side by side because you see like the big deal in 2019 is the birth of the Nexus 6, right? And how like that's the thing that's befuddling to Deckard that he can't get his head around. The big deal in 2049 in Nexus land is Nexus 9s, which are like the epitome of what they wish they could have built in 2019, right? Which they are just as capable and just as smart and just as passable, but they are so controllable and so behaviorally inhibited and they have, they can be killed whenever you want to kill them and you can just do away with them and it's totally fine and you're covered by law, you know? I mean, it's literally codified into the way that that society is structured that you can do with your property as you wish. And the Nexus 9 is a property of the LAPD as, as far as we know in 2049. So uh, yeah, it's it's cool to kind of see the arc that 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 takes, and to look at Deckard on that continuum because Deckard, as we see him in 2019, is a human being, allegedly, in the body of a tool. Right? Mm-hmm. He is he is a human being wielded, and that's a, that's a, it's almost like a soldier. You know, like when when people go to war, a lot of the time, they are you know issued orders and they are asked to carry them out regardless of the moral consequences of those orders and things like that and dehumanized quite a bit in that way and i think that we kind of see deckard doing that too he's treated as an object almost what's this nexus six roy batty incept date 2016 combat model optimum self-sufficiency probably the leader now let me ask you this Again, I feel like I've said this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. Not having a player in the game in this, in terms of whether Deckard is a replicant or not, I don't care. Um, and for some people, that's blasphemous for whatever reason. Like, I don't just, I just don't care about Deckard. You know, that emailer He's is not having wa- an aneurysm right now. Yeah, like, I just don't, I don't watch the movie for him, which is so interesting that, uh, I mean, and but we all watch things for different reasons. We all, yeah. you know, we all interpret things differently, um, which is why you fucking hate Shining Girls. And I <laughs> <laughs> Um, but for you, Patrick, is the, does the Decker rep question come up for you based off the scene? Do you, do you have, do you care? No, because, cause it's, cause it's Harrison Ford playing a human Deckard getting that information, okay. but it's fun to think about from the other angle. Right. Mm. And I, I think that the argument holds up really well both ways, but, but again, this is why, like, I think I, I said this during our Decker rep episode that although I don't particularly care about which of those answers is the correct one, because I think the movie can work in many different ways. I watch the movie with this assumption that he's human because I know that he's being played as one by Harrison Ford. So that's just sort of the version of the movie that I'm watching. And it's not like mm. I'm thinking like, oh, he better do this because he's human. It's just, he's just, he's a human. Cause that's, that's who Harrison Ford is playing. Um, what's interesting though, to go back to that angry emailer who I, I almost don't want to like give more air to, but it, it does bring up interesting questions. You know, part of what he was so angry about was that he thought we were missing the whole point of the movie in talking about the possibility that or actually, I think he was more angry that we didn't care which version he was because it was like, we weren't doing justice to the, to some of the fundamental questions of the film. 
To my mind, it's not that we don't care which is true. It's that we accept a reality where you can watch the movie different ways, you know? So like the movie does speak in a fundamentally humanistic and fascinating way if Deckard is a human the whole time. And the movie works out the way that people who really get angry about that argument wanted to. Like it plays like a beautiful story where a replicant teaches the value of life to a human and it works in this very, you know, very beautiful way. It also, I think, holds up if you look at it like he's a replicant. But the whole point of this question and the reason why I hate it is that it should never be an and it should never be an either or question because the people who made it were making different visions, you know? So like you can watch it through any of these different lenses and it works. And that's kind of the miracle of Blade Runner, but it doesn't devalue looking at it like he's a human and it doesn't devalue looking at it like he's a replicant. It just means that you can accept a world where there are multiple interpretations of this poetry that we're watching. Mm. But what's your answer to that? My answer to, uh, I, I still don't know what to think, honestly, and and referencing that email I, and and the way that I experience films and the films that I love so much is they are ambiguous. My favorite films are very ambiguous. I don't like answers. The older I get, the less certain I become about many things in life, and I'm I'm okay with that. One of the reasons why I love Alien so much, the original film, is because there's so much ambiguity there. There's so much left unsaid. There's so much mystery. And for me, if I have to box things in and look at things in a black and white way, that's not a happy Jamie. Like the world doesn't operate that way. There aren't black and there are some black and white things in this world, but most of the world is is are most of the world is a shade of gray. And I believe that Blade Runner, the original film is a total shade of gray. There's a lot going on that could be many different things. Now, if that's how some people, if some, if someone wants to watch Blade Runner with a black and white outlook and this is how it goes, that's great. Um, uh, the strange thing about that email is like, can't we let people enjoy the things and discuss things the way that they experience them? Isn't that okay? Does it really affect you that much? But at the same time, I'm glad that we got feedback. It, it helps us to question ourselves. It keeps us in check a little bit as well. And uh, it makes for some great discussion. Um, and I know we have to wrap this episode really quick, but uh, I, I don't think that there's another scene in this movie that is as gray as this moment with Bryant and Deckard. We don't really know what's happening. We kind of, okay, he's back on the scene. We uh, He's back on the force, sort of, to kill some or to retire some replicants. Everything else is like ambiguous and I fucking love it. This is Zora. She's trained for an off-world kick murder squad. Talk about beauty and the beast. She's both. The fourth skin job is Pris, a basic pleasure model, the standard item for military clubs in the outer colonies. They were designed to copy human beings in every way except their emotions. And the designers reckoned that after a few years, they might develop their own emotional responses. Oh, hate, love, fear, anger, envy. So they built in a fail-safe device. Which is what? For your lifespan. Now there's a Nexus 6 over at the Tyrell Corporation. I want you to go put the machine on it. And if the machine doesn't work? 
Yeah, and again, I think a lot of the credit also goes to M. Emmett Walsh and what he did with that scene because he played it in very atypical ways, and he does that in in both of the main sequences that we see him, and he just he brings a lot, a lot of depth to yes. his interactions. It would have been so easy to make Bryant into this like you know complete caricature where he's just this like hard headed, washed up you know old like lieutenant who got got a chip on his shoulder and he's barking orders, but he's not like that. Like he's he he comes across. Like he's dangerous because he's manipulative. And the fact that he's manipulative means that he cares enough to be manipulative, that he cares enough to still get what he wants out of people, regardless, uh, like, you know what I mean? So even though like he could just be comfortable and kind of, you know, retiring and into his middle age and enjoying his, you know, years, like he's still on the force and he's still playing the, the pieces on the chessboard. And, uh, and so like, there's this whole other life to Bryant that I love. And, and he's a character that, you know, I would love to see more of, and he really doesn't come up very much outside of that movie, but like, but I mean, it's such a, it's such a masterclass. And last thing I'll say on this before I have to get my kids off the bus is it's really a masterclass of a sequence in a few ways. The performances, and I think Harrison Ford, although he's borderline overacting it, I, I think that like, he's doing it, he's doing it with a lot of intention you know, mm-hmm. for example, like another thing, when he's talking to Holden, uh, not to Holden, he's talking to Bryant uh, in the other sequence and hold and Bryant tells him about what happened to Holden. Right. And he says, like, yeah, you know, he, he's he can he can you know breathe. OK, like that or whatever. I can't remember the dialogue right now. But like that sequence, the the little look of fear that creeps into Deckard's face is really and it's just this little instant and then it goes away again. But you get a lot out of those those you know, little tiny things that both of those actors give us. Mm. And it really feels like a really well acted scene. But in addition to that, it's one of the most prototypical examples of Jordan Cronenworth's masterful cinematography. Absolutely. Especially the scene that we're talking about right now, like the use of blue light, the, that fact that it's casting down at this 45 degree angle from the, you know, back of the screen. And it's almost lit like it's a confessional booth in a church or something. It's this like it's like nothing exists outside of the immediate things that we see in the frame. And then the the hard shadow drop off that we talk about all the time is so profound in that sequence. It's almost like they're floating in a void, um, even though they're just in that same LAPD room that we were just in a little while ago. Like it, it feels like they're on an alien planet, mm. and and like so many filmmakers and so many cinematographers wouldn't care about doing that because you don't have to like it's an expositional scene where you're getting your case briefing packet and the audience is getting theirs and you're like all right let's get to work and find these replicants you know and like every other movie i can think of doesn't have doesn't do anything with those sequences because it's just like a way to get information out and jordan cronoweth and ridley scott use that as an opportunity for something revelatory for something the painterly that looks like rembrandt you Mm -hmm. know um, and it's some of the most beautiful sequences in the entire film. And it's just this little tiny briefing room. And it's just, it's just an amazing, amazing sequence to look at. It really is. And with that, uh, we will probably come back around to something like this, another anatomy of a scene. There's plenty to yeah, talk about. Yeah, we should about. do more of these. Yeah. Do you uh, thank you fun? guys so much for listening. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to 
www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.